Welcome to Real Talk, real estate discussions with Andrew Kirsch. In each episode, Andrew interviews industry leaders. We'll hear their real-time opinions on today's market, their background and unique career highlights and guidance for newcomers to the industry. You can find this show at www.sklarkirsch.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and more. Now here's the host of Real Talk, Andrew Kirsch. Welcome to the second episode of the Real Talk podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kirsch. The more people I talk to, it appears that the rest of 22 is going to be a slow market. The rise in interest rates have completely chilled the real estate industry. There are some deals transacting, but it appears that many groups are waiting until 2023 to get back into the market. In this episode of The Real Talk, I have a conversation with David Schwartzman, the founder of Heritage Development, who is developing some of the largest projects in Los Angeles, including Crossroads in Hollywood, which is just steps from where the Academy Awards take place and also his redevelopment of the Baldwin Hills Mall. I have a very candid conversation with David as it relates to the real estate industry, the times that we are facing right now, and the political environment, especially in Southern California. I know you will enjoy it. All right. Welcome to another episode of Real Talk. I am honored that my good friend and client, Mr. David Schwartzman, founder of Heritage Development Group, is here to talk to us. David, how you doing? I'm great, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. Now, uh, David, this is hopefully is the uh, will be one of the greatest hours uh, of your life, other than yeah. your wedding, uh, the birth, Kids, of, and, and the birth of my children. Yeah, yes. this is this and is meeting it. you for the first time. <laughs> and w- let, w- when did we meet? We met, I think, at Obika. Obika in, like in like 2012. 12. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, I feel like I had a mixer, a title company mixer. That's right. I'm looking behold now. And uh, you, you're all grown up fine. Well, actually, you're not grown up, but uh, you'll <laughs> never be grown up. Never be grown up. You're well, grown up. Uh, trying to be. Um, well, there's so much we can get into, David. Uh, I feel like, you know, Heritage Development Group, still flies under the radar, even Uh though uh, I know you won't, well, maybe you will admit this, but others will admit this, and certainly I will, uh, one of the most prolific developers in Southern California. But I feel like there's, um, if I ever say the name Heritage, a lot of groups may not know you because you like to fly under the radar. Yeah. Why is that? Because I do a lot of entitlements, um, stuff where I'm going into hearings, public hearings with people. And generally, I think when you're dealing with the public a lot, it's better to be modest than being braggadocious. Many developers are promoters, per se. And they, like, listen, from a variety of people, they're very loud. They're on their Twitters. They're on their social media. That's not a way to be. When I'm asking to get projects approved and I'm in front of cities, if I'm sort of going out flaunting this and flaunting that, it just sort of opens up like sort of the the, the, the menu from the city of what they're going to ask me for. And sometimes I think it's better to be quiet and just get through your business and get done. And honestly, my father was raised that way. I mean, I think a lot of times social media, I know it's a, it's a newer age thing. And even though I'm 54, um, I'm probably not part of that that crowd. I just feel like I'd rather let my results speak for themselves. And I don't need to bang on my drum at the end of the day capital partners and lenders all know who i am and in fact a lot of the guys that are out there beating on their drums they don't know who they are but they pretty much know who we are i mean i always gave you crap because uh, i think we're allowed to say shit since it's my podcast i'll say you do whatever you want you're right this is this is my show this is uh, the Andrew uh, Kirsch hour um <laughs> uh, i remember giving you shit for the longest time because you had a gmail i did and not even now i have now my own directing i i listen again i'm uh I'm a dinosaur. So I think I'm, I'm last of a dying breed. Um, uh, there's a, a broker in Los Angeles who's a well-known broker who teaches a class at SC. And every year he does a thing where he has three different developers come. He has what he calls 
a corporate developer, a guy maybe who's doing like uh, works at like a company like Douglas Emmett or somewhere like that or a Kilroy. And then he has like what he like what he calls sort of the small. And then he has like what he says is more of the cowboy developer. And he always says like I'm like the last of a dinosaur. Uh, I probably have used the word cowboy to refer to you uh, more than once. And yeah. so uh, no, we're not a cowboy. We're, listen, we're very we might take risks that people don't understand. But I think you have to understand what you're doing. And I've been doing this for 30 years. So I think at the end of the day, we're very calculated in what we do. But um, we we have a different risk profile than other developers have. Absolutely. And I want to get into the deals that that you're currently doing and the deals that um you did do in the past that got you to where you are today. But the market, let's talk for a few minutes about today's market. Okay. Challenging. <laughs> Challenging is one word to, yes. say, uh, to say the least. I mean, what, what's but, your, but there's a lot of opportunity out there right now. Is, is it right now? Or do you feel like we still need to wait for there to be more blood in, uh, on the street? There's starting to be signs of it now. Like I'm buying a deal right now that, um, about eight months ago, I had offered a number for the site and they wanted double my price. And they were like, well, you know, the market. And I'm like, well, you're not quantifying risk on the steel. The site's an entitled site. And they said, you're not real. I told them, I said, there's still a lot of risk associated with the site. And I don't think you're valuing the risk properly. And they're like, oh no, we're going to test the market. It's a, it's a building deal. And uh, we basically said, this is where we're at. And it went through two or three buyers over the last nine months, maybe a year. And then in June of this year, it went to more, it basically was available. And they had some issues where they have to be out this year. So all of a sudden, my number looked pretty reasonable. And we're getting it for my number. And so, so that's, it, I wouldn't have gotten that a year ago at this time. I don't get that deal. Yeah. But what about the capital markets that you rely upon to to buy deals? Are they... Are they still, are they in the market? Are they doing deals? They are like where you might borrow before on land at let's say um, SOFR 500. In, in a good market, SOFR 500 was five and three quarters percent. Now SOFR 500 is 8%. So yeah. now, and now that SOFR 500 has become SOFR 700. So that's gone from seven, let's say 5.75 to 10 10.10%. So your, your borrowing costs have doubled. We're doing a lot of stuff with equity right now, actually. We're buying this deal. We're buying it all equity. Uh, we figure we'll put our financing on later when the world's calmed down. I do see uh, the storm is probably, my guess is we're in the worst of it. Um, I watch all these uh, smarter people than me on CNBC in the morning saying, well, if we're in a recession next year, I go, guys, we're already in a recession. We've been in a recession since January. And if you look back, a lot of the reasons why we're not in a recession has to do with political issues and not with they're calling it a recession. They can't say it's a recession right now going right. into a midterm election. Yeah, it's the the definition of recession has has changed, I guess. Well, it, it well again, it depends which party's in power. The Republicans are not saying <laughs> we're in a recession. Democrats will say we're not, but there's videos of Nancy Pelosi in George W. Bush's time saying we're in a recession, two negative quarters. So I mean, we're in a recession, and we're going to be three negative quarters. We'll probably be this whole year will be negative. Um, Inflation is slowing down. I'm seeing signs that I'm building a lot now. I'm starting to see some real drops and uh, some raw materials. And six months ago, I had to bake subs to like work on my jobs. Now I've got 10 guys calling me and like I didn't sign a contract on a job last week. We're just in the process of signing and the sub got nervous and goes, I'll give you 10% off. And like, okay. So I went to my guys like, guys, we need to negotiate now a little further because I think now is an opportunity. When things are good, everybody's raising and you have no leverage. I think now, if you have capital, you actually have the leverage. So um, speaking of capital, when – I mean this past summer, I, f I feel like most of the capital markets took off not one to two weeks off of vacation. They, they were gone the whole summer. They yes. were traveling in Europe. They were just checked out. Um, I thought that we would have a busy fourth quarter where uh, capital providers would need to get to their number uh, and re-enter. But at least on the value add side, it's been pretty much dead. I think value add is actually a bad proposition right now. I, I just think value add. I'm not a value add guy. Um, 
a lot of value add guys, you know, in a in a low rate of mark market, think they're very smart. Oh, they're just playing a financing game. I will tell you, if you're a value add guy and you didn't get fixed rate debt, you got a real problem right now. If your debt's rolling in the next 12 months, yep. you're you're going to be in a bad situation. Uh, we're everything we do is we do the entitlement. We we buy the raw land raw, we entitle it, and then we go and perfect our entitlement by building. So we're building to a much higher margin and. Uh, my pro, like I'm getting construction loans. Lenders still want to do construction loans because the way they view it, it's two to three years out your construction, and they view that you're they're, you're entering the market in a much better time. So that's the safest place for a lender to be. There's still equity capital as well. If your returns can work on today's numbers, everybody believes the future is going to be much better. What about the uh, leverage though? Are lenders uh, your construction lenders uh, requiring more equity, therefore, you know, less leverage. Um, so I'm in I'm in a few different food groups. I do. I'm, I about a year and a half ago switched into a build for rent. I started out as a home builder by say, and I always said I was never going to build houses again. But lo and behold, I've got 1,200 units now. I'm building across Los Angeles in Ventura County and adding another thousand. So we're doing a lot of build for rent. So. Um, there's a lot of money that wants to be in that space, both equity and debt. So it's, it's like a popular space right now. Uh, and honestly, in Los Angeles and Ventura, I think we're the only person in, of size that's doing it. So mm-hmm. um, I am I, not having a problem tra- attracting capital. Uh, we have, we're doing a lot of apartment stuff. Um, we're doing some high-rise apartments in, in Hollywood. We have capital on that. Um, we're all of our... A lot of our partners are high net worth and a lot of developers like to throw out the word high net worth. But I mean, without naming who my partners are, I mean, there are people like they're on the Forbes 400, the top 30 in the world richest list. I mean, they're they're very high net worth. So like they're not really as affected by the capital markets as some other people are. Have you noticed uh, preferred returns increase or promote splits decrease with uh, the changing market? You know, I haven't had that yet. I have a lot of long-term partners I've repeat business with. And if a partner did that to me, they probably wouldn't see another deal. <laughs> and we've had a very good track record. And if somebody decided to get like, let's say predatory with me, yeah, maybe on this deal, I'd have to do it, but they might not see the next deal. Right. So I think that's really, we have, a, we have, a, we, have a, we probably have about 10 or 12 groups that we're in current projects with, and we don't really have a shortage of LPs. If I had a situation where I had to do it, sure. But then I might not show them another deal. Are you, let's talk about your track record. Let's go even before that. Since yeah. very few people know the man, the myth, the legend of oh, David yeah. Schwartzman. Uh, you say that to everybody, Andrew, so I, I got to be careful. <laughs> where did you grow up? Tell us about your background. Uh, I grew up in Fresno, California. My dad was a farmer. Uh, I grew up in a small town, not small town, but uh, not on a farm, but uh, went to a small high school. Uh, came to USC, 1986. Um didn't had no desire to be in real estate. Did not think of myself as a real estate guy. I wanted to work on Wall Street. Thought I was going to be an investment banker. Um, went. Um, Did you go cow tipping in Fresno? I have done cow tipping. Yes. <laughs> Probably the only interviewer who's ever done cow tipping. I have gone cow tipping. Yes, I have done <laughs> I it never, a few times. I never even heard of what cow tipping is until when I was at Northwestern. We were driving to Indiana yeah. for something, and we were in the middle of Indiana, and, and the guy said, you want to go cow tipping? And I said, what the hell is that? It's a rite of passage in a small town. That And what we used to do in Fresno was funny. We used to have fig orchards, and we would get in our SUVs or our Jeeps, and we drive the fig orchards like there was like an obstacle course, and we drive in between the fig trees at fast speeds. Now, if you hit a fig tree, nothing happens. It's like weighs like 50 pounds. You just knock it over. So it's actually very safe. But we used to go figging, and we used to have our cake parties out in the figs. But yeah, so I grew up with that. And then um, went to USC, um, thought I was going to work on Wall Street. Actually thought I was going to go into a family business, was in the food business. And uh, when I was 21 years old, I was informed by my late uncle, hey, um, I'm selling this thing. Uh, I don't have time to train you. So he sold the business. Uh, I actually got a job on Wall Street, lasted about three weeks. Realized I was that long? For that, that long. I was basically pledging a fraternity again. So I was like getting calls at like three, five in the morning, go pick up my dry cleaning, do that. I'm like, okay, I don't think I, this is for me. Um, basically came back to Los Angeles, went to work for a fraternity brother and his father doing home building, some small deals in the San Fernando Valley. 
uh, worked for them for about 18 months, realized after about 18 months, I think I know more than they do. And what, uh, this is what, early, late 80s? Early 90s, early 90s. Early so 90s. Before, before the Northridge earthquake. Yes. Yeah, which yeah. was a terminal uh, moment in a lot of real estate developers' yes. career. We were in a recession. We were in a bad, it was the SNL crisis, FDIC. There was a lot of things going on. Um, my late uncle sold his company. And he basically said, why don't you and I, he didn't have any kids, why don't you and I go out and do real estate development? He'd invested with a lot of developers, was not a developer himself. He goes, I'll teach you. So went out and bought two or three projects with him, two in Thousand Oaks, one in Fresno. Uh, started building the Fresno project, started building Thousand Oaks. And my late uncle got, basically had a massive heart attack when I was 25 years old and was hospitalized for five months, never really recovered, eventually passed away. Uh, I remember sitting in the hospital and my late aunt, God rest her soul, she died four years ago at 99. Uh, basically, um, I said, well, when uh, everything's done, I mean, we'll just sell everything and you don't want to be in this real estate stuff. She goes, David, she goes, your uncle wasn't a real estate guy. He just could write a check. I can write a check as good as him. Go do it. And she believed in me and I sort of caught a meteor, a meteor rise. Um, Sort of had perfect market timing. Um, at, by 28 years old, I was building 350 homes a year. I was doing about $100 million in sales at, as a 28 year old kid in 1996 dollars, which today is probably $250 million a year. So it was like, it was overnight, like, wow. It's so let me interject though, because this is important. Did you, uh, obviously, your aunt and your uncle were instrumental in giving you that boost. But to go from what you were doing with those first couple of deals to what you were then doing two, three years later, did you get other outside capital or was it just Not family? I was using them. I was sort of like reinvesting profit building. Uh -huh. Then you, you hit the right question. 1998, I met some gentlemen that were running money for a company. They sort of kept it initially. They were officing with Roy Disney and uh, Burbank, but I was assuming it was Disney money, Shamrock at the time. Yep. And um, we negotiated JV. They were going to give me... $25 million of equity on a 90-10 structure where they put up 90%. I put up 10 and I was like, wow, I'm used to financing everything. I get half the deal now for 10% of the money. This is great. So um, uh, it turned out the money was Lehman Brothers. So from 1998 till 2008, I did about 35 deals with Lehman. And they were an amazing partner. Got to know many of the guys there very well. Got close to a lot of people. Um, 2008, I mean, sort of had, again, everything kept going up, 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 up. 2008, September 15th, 2008, Lehman files bankruptcy. I go from being a pretty successful guy to overnight having about $500 million of personal recourse on loans. So, I mean, gosh, we could have a five-hour podcast. This could be a, just, yeah, this is a five-hour story. So, but when, um, and I know you've been very open about your story and so, and, and people have really relished and, and appreciated your candor. Um, at what point though, before mid-September, 2008, or was there a point that you felt I am overexposed? I have issues. Yeah. Issue. When did, I did you feel that? So I had a, a guy I worked with at Lehman that left Lehman in 07, mid, mid 07. Yeah. And I remember having lunch with him at the Houston's in Century City, which is no longer. And I was like, Harry, why did you leave? His name was Harry. And he was, he was, he was groomed to be one day, maybe the main guy. And I go, why did you leave? And he says, well, one, I can never be the head guy too. Lehman doesn't have any room on their balance sheet for any errors. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, we're in a downturn right now. If it gets a lot uglier, I'm not sure they survive. And I was like, really? And it's sort of in the back of my mind, I started thinking about it. And then 07 was going on. I mean, everything seemed to be okay. The housing market had actually already slowed, but commercial apartments, everything was very strong. It was just the for sale housing. Okay. And what was, type of deals did you have with Lehman? Mostly housing sites for sale. And I was doing a lot of land development, a lot of home building. I had about 17 deals at the time they failed. Mm. I had a few apartment deals, but I had a lot of housing. I was my apartment deals are not, not what got me in trouble. If it was just apartment deals, I could have probably worked those out. It was the land in the Central Valley and Sacramento and all up the coast that got me when it went when the market went illiquid, that went to zero. 
I mean, there was no but value. The scratch, there was, there was the no so the exposure that you faced overnight when Lehman went bankrupt, describe the structure that you and Lehman had with your lenders and why you were holding the bag. So technically I had an indemnity from Lehman Brothers Holdings. So whenever yeah, I signed the, the joint venture, I through the joint venture, but I had an uptick to holdings. Mm-hmm. I also had another guarantee from a company called Lehman Ali, which was actually a solvent company and stayed solvent, but you couldn't figure out through the bankruptcy myriad how to get to that company. It was like very convoluted. When Lehman, and I didn't have general recourse obligations, but when Lehman filed bankruptcy, I had what's called a bad boy guarantee, which is very important to know. All my bad boys triggered. So by their filing bankruptcy, they triggered my BK. Now, but the argument was they they, trig- they triggered your bad boy guarantee. My bad boy. Yeah. There was an argument which I later won in bankruptcy court, which said I actually had a tier called Lehman Ali and Lehman Pammy that never filed. See, people looked to the next company and said, Oh, that's a BK, but the company that was the indemnitor with me never filed. People ran into court and said, Oh my God, he's got a problem. I was actually trying to service my debt. I couldn't do it, but I was trying. And I actually, personally, personally, I bled myself a lot doing it. And uh, looking back, I probably should have taken a different strategy, but I I thought I could keep the ship afloat. And so I was servicing the debt. And then one or two of my lenders went on what was called a writ of attachment. And um, it was very confusing for a judge to understand, but they got a writ granted against me and I had no choice but to file personal bankruptcy, which I did on June 1st, 2009. What was, I mean, you were how old at that time? What, I was 30s? 41 years old. 41 years old. I what? was, it, it was bad. It was really, I mean, it was like, listen, I'll tell you, um, cause I think people are going to have this. Some people are going to go through stuff like this. I think coming, this is not 2008. So I'm not saying that at all. I don't think it's anywhere near that, but there are going to be some people who have some challenging portfolios or have some real issues. Um, I had worked for 18 years, had known nothing but success, and now I was looking at serious failure. And so I remember saw- talking to my, my my mother and my late aunt. My mom's still here, God willing, 93 years old, to, uh, uh, three weeks ago. And then both saying, now this is where you're going to build your character. And you know what? We think you have what you have, what have what it takes, and you're going to get through it, and you're going to make, you're going to come out stronger. And I was like, oh, you guys are crazy. But lo and behold, we did. But it was about two and a half years of like, I mean, it was an alley fight between so fighting did, with, yeah, lenders, everything. Did, um, by the way, did uh, your aunt, uh, did you lose any money for your aunt during this uh, no. bankruptcy? No, in fact, she actually had paid her off a lot of her money. Mm-hmm. And then because I unwound ventures and then she basically came back in through some structures and doubled down with me. And she helped. And then the, the irony of the whole deal is Lehman went bankrupt and the gentleman that ran Lehman Real Estate ended up being the other person that bailed me out. So it's a guy named Mark Walsh. And he came in and uh, recapped like two or three of my deals in 2010 when nobody would really talk to me. And the fact that he showed confidence in me with his own personal money then helped me get confidence back with other capital groups in the market. Yeah. So what was the stigma that that your repute, the David Schwartzman reputation, which we can do a whole podcast on that. But in 09 and 10, were you, was it like a pariah where yeah, people- you, you were, you had a, I had a per, I was going through a personal bankruptcy. I remember meeting with a lot of people, a lot of developers who said, oh, I've got money. I can help. I can be your partner. And every tried to be very predatory. Um, a lot of these guys I'd sit in meetings and they'd say, how they had money, I'd say, well, what kind of liquidity you have? And they'd say their number. I go, dude, I'm in bankruptcy. I have more money than you. I mean, because I'm, I'm funding my dip. I go, how are you going to help me? So it was very humbling for me. Um, pre 2008, I was actually much cockier than I am now. I was like, I was, I was like a walking disaster, I would say. And I think it really humbled me a lot and came to know who your friends really are and who who are not your friends. And there's a lot of listen. I'm going to give a quote, and I use this quote all the time. Uh, bankers are like umbrellas. When it's raining, you can't find one. And when it's dry, you have 20 of them. Okay, which is saying in good times, they're your best friends. 
sure. bad times, they're like scrambling. You, you can't buy. Them. So I've really been, I've tried to be selective in who I partner with and who I do stuff with. And I mean, most of my partners now, I think are, we've proven ourselves in a long relationship and you're solid partners. And I think you have solid partners. That's a lot of um, what you need. Uh, I mean, now you you have much more uh, diversification with respect to your equity partners versus ten different LPs or twelve. Yeah, so if one goes down, it's not going to take down the entire. It's actually an opportunity to come in, yeah, with another one, yeah. Yeah, I'm not all in with one group anymore. That that will never happen again. Do you still though? I mean, is is that is that scarlet letter gone, or I mean, you you've done. Yeah, Let me ask I, don't think I, I, I bring it up. I don't think, I mean, other than maybe occasionally a Wells Fargo, I mean, naming them like, well, you had a BK 14 years ago. We won't cut yeah. you. I'm like, okay, but I don't want your money anyway. So it, it doesn't matter. I, there's a lot, there's the Blackstones of the world. The other guys, they'll lend and they seem to be able to work past that. So, so but yeah, you, there, there is a stigma. I'm not going to tell people there's not, but you work through it and you overcome it. So you've obviously had two phases of your career, pre-08, post-09. Yep. It, the, the second phase of your career um, has been even more successful by magnitudes, well. right? Multiple. Yeah, I know. We, we've done very well. Yeah. So Not, would you say that the Lehman bankruptcy experience and personal bankruptcy experience led to in a weird way you resetting and becoming even stronger and more profitable and smarter i think it made me a better businessman i I tell that people all the time i go probably the best thing in my business career was going bankrupt and people say they go oh yeah yeah sure no it really for me was because i learned from it and i evaluate things differently i decided to more specialize i used to be more geographic like all over the state of california like I have a deal or two in Northern California and I have some legacy sites in the central coast, but generally we are LA Ventura, Orange County development. We're not like doing projects in Sacramento. We're not here. We're not there. We're very focused and everything we do is mostly residential in nature and it requires an entitlement. So we're, we're we've narrowed our field. When did you say, or just to yourself, I'm back. Like you just felt comfortable, you were in the market, people were coming to you, you had your umbrella in dry times. How many years did it take? Probably four. From when I would say 2014, I felt like, okay. Like I was back and sort of clean by 2012 from all that stuff. But then I had to build back a life and I had a lot of things I sold in 13 that I had kept. That got me some cash back. 14 was better. 15 was great. 16 was like a quiet year. 17 was good. 19 was an amazing year. 2021 was an amazing year. So it just sort of like, and even like this year, like right now, I view this year as an opportunity. We're buying a lot. We're buying a lot of sites right now. We're buying like five or six sites right now. Um, I'm only in the market for like one or two financings, which is great. Uh, uh, I'm getting bids. I mean, yes. Are they a little wider than I'd like them to be? Sure. But uh, I've got a big margin in these deals, and it's more I think I'd rather build in a recession and and build at a lower cost and sort of pay more for financing because I can actually drive a better price right now with subcontractors. So now you have, like you said, 10 or so large institutional private equity uh, and family offices, high net worths uh, who are providing you equity. What um, uh, – how – I guess, what do you look for in an equity partner? Uh, I want an intelligent partner. A lot of people like people say, oh, I want dumb money. No, I want a partner because let me tell you, dumb money is great in good times, but in bad times, you want a partner that understands it doesn't panic. I had a partner that at the start of COVID, I was partners with in 2012, and they always seemed like great guys. There was, and the start of COVID, they stopped funding me on four deals. They said, we're not funding. I said, Why? And like, well, you know, the market, we're scared. I go, well, dude, but you have a guarantee with me. They said, sue us. So we end up getting in a little tussle, but we end up being able to buy them out at huge discounts. Then later on, they're like, my God, you took advantage of us. They go, you guys stopped funding. And you you made the trade, you agreed. So they actually, it worked out well for us. So now I want people that can sort of 
sit through the storm and um, that are just good people. So I, inherited, I inherited this group. I met them through somebody and I inherited them. So I think this is important in the future to like know who you're – like I'm partners of the group now. I think I knew them for 14 years before I did a deal with them. And now I've done four deals in the last 18 months. And they're great guys. And um, But I had like a 13 or 14-year courtship with them. So let's talk about Heritage today. You know, how many employees, how many projects, and and talk about, I mean, some of these projects from 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 uh, Baldwin Hills to Crossroads to previously the LA Pine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you, so we, have, we, have a, we have a construction division now that we formed a separate company, has about 16 or 18 employees. And then we have Heritage, which has about 16 or 18 employees. So up to like 40 people. Um, we have 25 projects. We have about 2,000 units we're doing in Southern California as built for rent. We have another about 4,000 single-family lots we're entitling. Now they're in various stages of entitlement. Like nothing would be on a program to sell before, let's say, 2025. So we're sort of I look at it as a perfect timing in the market. Um, we have about eight or nine multifamily deals. Uh, ranging from an 80-unit deal in Northridge, it's a, fr- uh, a remnant site, to 950 apartments, type one construction in central Hollywood, Los Angeles. Uh, we have the Crenshaw Mall, which is a mix of different asset classes that we bought last year. A uh, lot of press around it. Um, not always good, but there was a story behind the press uh, that we bought 45 acres in the middle of Los Angeles for $3 million an acre, which is pretty unheard of fully entitled for 3 million feet of development. So on an FAR foot, we paid $40 an FAR foot. And um, we underwrote the deal to have no NOI in place. And it probably has about six, $7 million in place NOI. So the way I look at it, we bought the site for zero. So it's an amazing deal. The neighborhood, actually, there was a group that was protesting a lot and had scared off three or four buyers. They got national news. They were protesting, marching every week at my house, in front of my office, at my house, at my attorney's house, uh, my land use attorney. Um, they went to my capital partner's offices in New York City. But the day after we closed, noise was gone. It really wasn't as things appeared. It really had nothing to do with an, a, a, a white group buying a property in South LA it had more to do with they were maybe working with another bidder on the deal and trying to scare off the competition. The deals that these that you're transacting, I mean, how are you coming across them? I mean, are they marketed deals? Are these off-market deals? Uh, how do you source your deal flow? Uh, both. I mean, I get. I have a reputation for doing deals that are entitlement sites. So sometimes people know of a deal that call me. It might not be on the market per se. Uh, we get a lot of marketed deals. Um, a lot of times people come in and they list properties with brokers and brokers throughout numbers that are just completely not reasonable. They want to get a listing and it goes through two or three trades and rounds. And then we come in third or fourth round on a deal and buy it after the market said property's not worth the initial number. We're never going to be the highest bidder on the site. I would say that we're not, but when we bid, I like to say we're good. We'll close. And that's our reputation. We're close. People know we'll close. So we're not the high bidder. If you're looking for the high guy, I'm not your guy. So times like this are better for me because now people want certainty of close. So all most of your transactions are Southern California. In fact, yes. a lot of them are infill LA over the yes. last two, two to three years we've seen a lot of a lot of both residents and operators and developers uh, leave Southern California. They've gone to Austin and Dallas and Phoenix and Vegas and Salt Lake City, but you're here. Uh, yep. the, I'm, and I'm staying here. You're not leaving. Nope. Uh, a Those lot of cap- get smoked. They're going to get smoked. What, what's that? They're going to get smoked. In these other markets, real estate's local. At the end of the day, real estate's I'm development. I'm not talking about a guy buying a hundred unit apartment building, right. walking around a cocktail price. Oh, I'm a developer. Like that to me, you buy apartment buildings. You're not a developer. Developer's a guy who buys something, creates something, builds it, or maybe, and I think actually truly has to build it. I mean, in some ways, I've been a lot of times in entitlement and flip. Now we've transitioned to where we're building. But mm-hmm. to me, a guy who buys a 200 unit apartment building to change out the cabinets or the appliances 
calls himself a developer. He's not a developer. Um, so I want to talk about that. And, and those guys chasing, they're chasing yields and markets. And now those yeah. markets overinflated. And you'll see in a downturn, those markets are getting hit the hardest. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. saw the cap rates in Albuquerque were lower than cap rates in L.A. Yeah. It didn't make sense. We're the biggest county in the United States. We're not going anywhere. California's economy, even with all of our bad management, is the sixth largest economy in the world. All right, so let's talk about that management to the extent you can. Sure. Um, So you're staying in L.A., you're staying in Southern California, uh, yet the regulatory environment both locally in L.A. and statewide is challenging. Uh, And so – Not so pain of heart. No, but you're here. What – You know why? Because I'll tell you, and that's an advantage we have. We're not afraid of the fight. And most guys, they want to go where it's easy, but the barriers of entry are easier. I want to be in the toughest market for barriers of entry. I don't have to worry about a guy opening up a project down across the street from me to compete against me. If I want to do a 300-unit subdivision, first of all, find the land. Second of all, I once we're entitled, we have locked our value. We have created. You're not replicating what we do. So that's my whole model. I want to get projects that are so hard to entitle that once it's done, we believe in our ability to get it done, that once it's done, we have created our value. I'm not going to build the best widget. I've always said I'm not the best widget builder out there, but you go to a market like Texas where there's 18,000 lots and another 100,000 behind, you have to build, oh, I have to build a dollar a foot cheaper in this guy and be more efficient. Dude, that's not my game. I, that's that's too tight a business for me. I like the tough barriers of entry. But when it takes years to get development approvals and your preferred return is ticking away and causing the development to be so much costlier, how do you how do you underwrite that? Um, buy it for less. Got to buy it for less. That's why I say I'm not on raw land. I am not the high bidder. I will always mm-hmm. tell people that. But generally, when I go and buy a piece of land, at the end of the day, when it flushes out, okay, I'm not buying it subject to, I'm buying it as is. So there's a there's subject to price and an as is price. Usually a difference in price can be 40, 50%. So I'm taking advantage of the as is price and then I can get it done faster and make up any difference. And generally we have. Mm-hmm. And how, how important is it to have, let's say, covered land plays like even the Crenshaw deal where you're getting NOI uh, while we're entitled. You know. we're entitled. We're, okay. There was an entitlement in place and we're building within the existing entitlement. So we're doing some design perfection, but we're building within the existing entitlement. That's why we like that deal so much. I mean, that deal started out in 2019 and there were four buyers, four buyers before me. I was the fourth buyer that started out without the Macy's at like $150 million with a guy we know who does a lot of studio stuff. And then with the Macy's, it was over $200 million trade, $210 million. Then it went to CIM, which is this all public knowledge. And they were like $180, $190 million. And then it went to a guy from New York. And every time the bidding happened, I was always the number two bid. I was funny. And then like the first time was Michael Hackman. He was here. I was there. CIM was there. The second time Hackman was out, CIM jumped $20 million over me. I went down $15 million, figuring there's a little distress. And COVID had just started. And I was like, okay. They came. I was shocked. They blew out. Then the third round, I go, okay, I got to get it. Then they got a bidder out of nowhere who never really was going to get the deal done. And he threw out a number, but he he wasn't real. And then he fell out. And then um, we uh, signed – we put the property in escrow in May of 2021. And we we went non-refundable end of June, and we closed August 19th of 21. And, um, but yeah, but I mean, it, it was like a falling knife, the price. And so what, um, in terms of the game plan, I mean, what is the game plan with that site then? So we're entitled for 950 units, a mix of condos and apartments. We're going to do it. Uh, we're redesigning some of the product to make it less dense appearing. Uh, we're converting some of the empty department store boxes into, I would say institutional uses per se. Mm-hmm. office, but with an institutional tenant, could be a university. Um, and then we're, we think the retail, when it's repackaged and remarketed, we've had a tremendous amount of leasing demand for the site. It's crazy. I mean, I people say, uh, the market said, 
I've got LOIs for about 200,000 feet of new leases right now at the mall, which That's is crazy. incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. At, at much higher numbers than we would have thought. It's it's funny because of where we're located with the the new world with all the ESG requirements. We're like sort of like the perfect ESG site. Right. And we're we got a subway station that opens tomorrow in our site. We have a brand new subway station in the middle of our mall. In our mall, we have we're two miles from Culver City. And we have a land basis of, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to do math at the top of my head. I want to say $60 a square foot on land and on FAR, about $40 an FAR foot is our land basis in the deal. Is so, this the deal that gives you the most excitement right now? Or are I there think, other um, I think this and Crossroads. Crossroads has been something I've worked on in a sense where I, I saw the property in 2004 and wanted to buy it. And yeah. ended up making a deal in 2014. Uh, we were entitled in 2019. And then all the CEQA challenges started. We um, had two and a half years of litigation. We won seven different lawsuits against AIDS Healthcare. Uh, and we recapitalized the first phase last year. We'll recap the second phase by February of next year, maybe even surprise do it this year. But our plan is to start construction in July of next year. We're doing our plans right now through the city. And I think both Crossroads and Crenshaw are generational projects in a sense. I mean, there's stuff that will be known around the world. When you're looking at the Academy Awards, the red carpet from the Academy Awards is 100 yards from our site. So when you do the red carpet here, you'll see three towers. I mean, five, six years from now, the three towers of Crossroads, three 30-story towers going up, looking down the red carpet. And when you look at the housing market and the actual disposable personal income of the people that live within a mile or two of that mall, it blows people away. People go, oh, it's a poor area. No, actually, the disposable personal income next to that site is higher than it is in Hollywood. People don't realize that. And um, the neighborhood's been great to work with. The homeowners groups are, they want something done. They've been ignored for a long time. Uh, people have looked at other areas. And uh, I remember hearing about the Crenshaw Mall 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. When I was in development, it's like, oh, you, there's a deal here. There's this site. There's... And for 20 years, it's language. And you know what? We're going to get it done. We're doing it. We're getting it done. And um, we're very excited about it. And yeah, look, as a, as a Los Angelino born and bred, uh, I've always known about the, uh, that location and, and, and that site. And I'm looking forward to seeing the end product. No, it's, um, like I said, we'll start our first construction there. We'll start our apartments in June of next year. Our first thing uh, is just, yeah, sorry. So you keep talking about the tough regulatory environment in L.A. We have a mayoral election in four weeks. Um, I'm not going to get into politics as to who you want, although I know who you want. If you were mayor. What's that? If if you were mayor. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay. What would you do? To change the city, because like I said, and as as our, our our listeners can hear you are one of the most prolific developers. You deal with the city. You deal with politicians on a daily basis. So what, what's, what's needed to change the city? Because you have to admit, this city has deteriorated in, in, in certain regards over the last 20, 30 years. Well, here's the thing. At the end of the day, I think people care most about safety and security. Okay, We're not safe right now. Um, we have a, and, I, and I'll say it, we have a horrific t- district attorney. He is terrible. I think more than the mayor, we need to deal with the DA. Because right now, criminals think they have a free pass at everything in life. And I think in two years, I think the recall, I don't know what happened with it. I think it was a lot of bullshit, pardon my French. But I think in two years, Gascon will be on his ass and get get him, get rid of him. Let him go and fuck up some other city. Okay, And I'm not getting, I don't care. I'm a registered Democrat. <laughs> He is bad. He really feels short. No, I, I, I hate the fucking guy. He's a piece of shit. He's he's trash. They're, and I'm not getting into politics, but there are certain states that are doing well. Why is that? Because I think they're more worried about the safety and security of the citizens than they are about some certain rights. Okay. I mean, like, guys, everybody's the same here. Okay. Nobody needs to be treated differently. We're all, at the end of the day, we all put our clothes on the same. We're all going to go to the same place. Okay. Created by the same God. So at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. And we need to look, work a little more together and stop fighting each other. Like when I went to South LA, I heard all this noise and there was a lot of stuff. Yeah. I'm a corrupt 
racist gentrifier. I hate women. I'm anti-Latino. I'm anti-Latino. My wife's Venezuelan. Okay. I'm anti-Latino. Okay. So I had all this crap about me. Okay. And it was from a group and they were trying to scare me off and they were going on, they were going on radio stations. There was on MSNBC, a show in the morning where they cited an article written by Eater LA as to why this group was more qualified than my group to buy the site. Dude, Eater LA, they're a food <laughs> blog. And nobody, nobody says that because it's a certain group and they say it's a certain way. So what I've learned is when I've gone to the neighborhood, I actually had a um, meet and greet last October at Post and Beam, which is a restaurant in our mall. And I had about 250 people from the community. And I said, guys, listen, I'm not going to all, I'm going to build a, We're going to build a great project here. We're not going to tell you what you want to hear, but when we say something, we're going to do it. Okay. And we have a development agreement. We're going to follow the rules. If you want to ask for more, we're not your guy. Do you want to get a project built or do you want to keep trying to get something out of us? Cause if you want to do that, I'm not your developer. We're, we're going to have a lot of problems, but we're entitled. But at the end of the day, here are the rules. I'm going to live by the rules. I'm not going to break them and we're going to build the project and get it done. Right. And you know what? They gave me like a standing ovation. Because for like hard to argue with that. Yeah, but here's the thing. But people want to go and say what they think people want to hear. And sometimes I think people need to hear the hard truth. Mm-hmm. And we are the city's in crisis. And honestly, I mean, listen, the mayor, I, I'll tell you, I don't know what the mayor can do because it, we're driven by the council. What's Correct. scary to me more is that we're we're electing socialist candidates that want to defund the police and decriminalize homelessness even further. And I'm not saying they're criminals but they need to be dealt with. They can't just be left there to die on the streets. That's the crime. Well, I think uh, David Schwartzman in, in the next election, uh, you need to put 20, your hat 20, in the ring. Uh, 2030. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, but listen, at the end of the day, listen, I, I, I really think it's very sad what's going on, but LA will survive. LA will get through it. Sometimes you have to bottom out before you can go back. I think San well, Francisco. Yep. They'll continue. San Francisco is actually on the way up. Believe it or not, people say, oh, my God, maybe not the city, but they're going to clean up their act. They, they, But they bottomed out. I'm not sure we're ready to bottom out yet. I think this election will tell us if we are or we aren't. I think if we get pardoned by French, this socialist crap agenda, it'll, the bottoming will happen in the next two to four years, and then they'll be thrown out. Yeah, the, the, residents, are going, the residents are not going to have the services. They're, it's going to be unsafe, and so many people – will experience the negative aspects of of our city that that look, that you're talking look at about. you you live in the palisades you have a councilman you have a council seat open you have two people running with two different agendas completely one is thinks the guy that was there is great and yep. just being to be nicer and the other one the attack on the woman tracy park is yep. well she used to be a republican all kidding aside who gives a shit what party you are you need to get things cleaned up and you, it, it, it just needs tough action. Who's ever willing to do the best person for the job? Not about some quota. The best person for the job is what people need. Well, I'm glad we didn't uh, turn this into a political conversation. No, we didn't. Um, so, look, we have a couple minutes left. I want to do a lightning round with you, Mr. Schwartzman. So a, f- a few questions, quick answers, and we'll wrap up. Let's do you it. Ready for that? I'm ready, buddy. I mean, you, you, you live, breathe, drink, eat, sleep, real estate. But if you were not in the real estate business, what would you be doing? Be a movie producer. A movie producer? Yeah, I think so. What type of movies? I got the great last name. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I think that, I mean, honestly, I love what I do. I always say I, I could have worked on Wall Street, but I, I don't know. I think I found my niche in life. And, you know, sometimes people are starting for work and you, you, you get lucky and you fall into it. Sometimes people never do. I love what I do. I wake up every morning looking forward to work. It sounds like a line from Jerry Maguire. Um, the, best advice, the best advice someone has given you. Specialize. Don't be good at one thing. Don't be a jack of all trades. Find something you're good at and focus. And that in real estate, that's an asset class. I see guys that jump around, oh, I'm doing a development in Florida. I'm doing stuff here. Like, dude, you're going to get smoked. I Focus. And I assume that's the advice you'd give to someone who's starting out at 25 years old? 
I would say learn from the bottom. That's mm -hmm. I mean, I would say learn from the bottom up. Know every part of the business before you go on your own. You need to. It's way too it's way too hard right now. Um, I think it's gotten more corporate development. It's gotten more and more corporate. Like 20, 30 years ago, there were a lot more entrepreneurial developers than there are today. There's still guys out there, but it's getting more and more corporate as we speak. Like the home building world, there there are no private guys anymore. Do you use Excel? Got do guys you, in my office there. Do you know how to use Excel? Um, I I knew Lotus one two three. <laughs> I know. No, I know. I, but you know what? I do it in my head. Yeah. Well, you're. I'm in my head. By the way, can I? I'm gonna be honest about spreadsheets. Spreadsheets are the manufacturer deal. If you can't, if I like with my little calculator and pen and paper can't figure out a deal in my head, it's not a deal worth doing. Because all I'm the Excel is gonna do is tweak it to make me underwrite it to work. If it doesn't work on a pen and paper, it doesn't work. All right, a couple more. Is there a deal out there that you didn't you 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 didn't stretch for, you didn't do, and you're still kicking yourself? Despite all yes. these other deals, is there one out there that you wish yes. you did? Yes. There was a site 26 years ago, and mm -hmm. I lost it to a friend of mine who's named Michael Rosenfeld, who you know, in Thousand Oaks. And it was 400 acres. It was Wells Fargo was owned by Olympia New York, who was a huge developer in the 80s. It went down. And I had the deal. And they came back to me and they go, Mike raised his bid $250,000. Would you up another two fifty? And I was like, but do we have a deal? And I go, well, he went higher. Can you go a two fifty over? And I said, no. So was, I had to up my bid five hundred grand, And I didn't. And he ended up entitling the deal. And he sold lots. And that deal made about $50 million. So yeah, I, I wish that was a deal. I would have stretched 500 to make 50, yes. Wow, uh, hindsight. hindsight. Uh, in, in 10 years, when we do the 10-year reunion show of The Real Talk with David Schwartzman, where am I going to find you? Sitting here, man. Maybe in Brian a different did. office, but I'll be here doing the same thing. Attacking. I love Attacking. it. Keep going, man. Schwartzman, I can't thank you enough. Yeah. You're the best. I love you. You're the, no, you're the best. I All really right. appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. All I'll right. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to Real Talk, real estate discussions with Andrew Kirsch. You can catch prior episodes at www.sklarkirsch.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing this show with others. 